Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the political party. The Oracle, Deborah Mattinson, returns her third appearance on the show and just gets better every time. This is absolutely superb. Deborah shares with us her latest Mood of the Nation report, her leadership study and some brilliant stuff from her fantastic new book, Beyond the Red Wall, which I've put a link to in the blurb for you to be able to buy. It's absolutely fantastic. And this, you know, when I first got into politics as well as the activism and, and the ideas and the, the marches and all that, placards and everything um, that got me into it, I was obsessed with polling and Bob Worcester from Murray and just these people that do all this research that can tell you what people think and why they think it and why this part of this place thinks that and why people in this area think a different thing. And again, Deborah gives us the benefit, not only those years of experience and that perspective, but some absolute just oh i feel so i I mean it's an analogy i overuse but i do feel like i've just been to one of the best university seminars i think my god this is the stuff that corporations pay like millions for and deborah's just here on this podcast giving us this stuff for free this is the sort of stuff that gets presented in downing street and here i am an oik Getting this stuff in here, all you are, um, less oiky than me, I'm sure, getting it as well. I just think, wow, what a treat. Doesn't it just make you think life's wonderful sometimes? You think, I bet you just set up a podcast and amazing people like Deborah just come on, give us the benefit of all, you know, it costs money to do all that stuff. Oh man, I love stuff like this. So anyway, so I won't get in the way of it. I'm going to shut up. And and um, and leave you in the capable hands of Deborah, um, who was on the show in February. And how much has changed since then? One of my last guests before COVID. Um, and we began by slightly reminiscing. I was wondering, actually, and trying to recall the last time Deborah was on the show, whether we had any inkling about what was to happen. Deborah, you were last on the show on the 5th of February this year, and how much wow. the world has changed since then. We were talking about mm. uh, your research coming out of the last general election, and the, and the world has transformed in a profound way um, since then. Um, we the, absolutely uh, no idea what was coming down the track, did we? Just extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary when you think about it. Well, you know Another- what? I was trying to remember. I thought, on the 5th of February, was there any inkling? I mean, I vaguely remember... I remember the Evening Standard getting into trouble for that cartoon at the start of the year, and I think that was the first time I was sort of aware of coronavirus. But I don't think at the 5th of February, the last time we spoke on this show, no, we were I, aware I don't that this was going to happen. studio as normal, and it was... No, absolutely. And in fact, I was at that point 
um, about to do my sort of round of focus groups and, and interviews in people's houses and so on that I did for the Red Wall book. Um, and that all happened, you know, within a couple of weeks after that. So yeah, the book is now out. There's so many things in it I want to ask you about. Um, <laughs> there are particular places you go, and Stoke on Trent is a place very close to my heart. I worked there for a while um, when uh, the BNP were on the rise and sort of witnessed some of these early warning signs, really that that, that are now playing out. Um, so thinking about Stoke in the context of the Red Wall and the work that you did there, what was your impression of the place? Well, Stoke, I have to say, was the one location that I had to do virtually. So I'd, I'd been up to Hindburn and spent a few days in Accrington. Um, and, and what I was doing was a mix of focus groups and what we call ethnographic interviews. So you go into people's houses, you hang out with them, you spend quite a long time with them, you wander up the road to the school to pick up their kids with them or go shopping or whatever they're going to do. Uh, and I'd done that in both Darlington and in, um, in Hindburn. But by the time it came to Stoke, everything was all set up and then we went into lockdown. So I had to do it all virtually. Now, I have been to Stoke because I was brought up, um, you know, just outside Manchester. So it was relatively near. I'd been there and visited the potteries with my parents as a child. And, you know, so I knew the place, but I hadn't actually been back there. So that was one of the one of the places that I had to sort of manage doing. I, I did as much as I could. I did the interviews virtually. I did focus groups virtually. Um, so in that sense, I haven't got a very up-to-date impression of it, but the people gave me a very vivid story. They told me how much they felt things had changed. They were very disappointed. Um, you know, they described them, they said, it's it, we're like a corridor, basically. We're stuck. And it's, you know, all of the industry has shut down. The potteries have shut down. They have such a proud past, as you know. Potteries that remain are just museums. Um, and then there are, you know, there are big sort of dispatch centers for Amazon and so on. And that's where most people work. And, and a bet, Betfair as well. Yes, yes, Bet365 is a big... Um... A, a big local brand and it's interesting we'll come on to that because it's interesting how well they come out actually in in, in sort of anecdotally amongst local people and that was something that I sensed when I worked there as well but um how difficult was it then you do these things ethnographic's not a word I've, I've heard before what does that mean so it's I mean it's a sort of it's it's a, it's a technique that is used so it's it's about observational so rather than finding out what people think by asking them questions you are, uh, you're watching what they do, you're observing their behaviours, and you're building a different sort of relationship with them. Um, so, you know, in a, a focus group is, is, is obviously quite a sort of artificial thing in a way. You've got people sitting around talking about things they wouldn't normally talk about with people they wouldn't normally talk to. Um, it works very well, but this just gives you a different angle. And it, what I felt that it gave me here was a much sort of deeper understanding really of, of where those people and the people in, in every case, I focused entirely on people who had been lifelong Labour voters who had voted Conservative for the first time in December 2019. And I, and I really wanted to kind of understand what had driven that. And I, I just got a much better understanding of them and where they were coming from by understanding their lives, if you like. And are you, when you're doing these sorts of interviews, I mean, in a weird way, you're kind of, you're like a detective. You're kind of, you're, 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 you're spending time with them. You're kind of staking them out. You're watching their every move. You're looking for signs of things. 
are there specific things that you're looking for, almost like a doctor would, or are you just there to get a general sense and at the end of the day, whatever kind of impression you're left with it comes through into the kind of research? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, there certainly were some things that I was looking out for. And, and, and one of the things I think um, was, and this is something that I hear again and again. So one of the big themes of the book is how judged those people in the Red Wall felt by, uh, if you like, the kind of what, what they called the people who'd taken over the Labour Party, who they, they just characterised as sort of snooty graduates who were looking down on them. Mm. And this was about their values, their attitudes, the fact that they voted Brexit. It was a whole host of things. And, and I really wanted to understand what was driving them and what they were like. And th they felt that they met a lot of hostility and they weren't wrong, actually, because I certainly know that whenever I had posted anything on Twitter, often about red wall voters, about people who'd voted Brexit and so on, I would get a tirade of quite often quite aggressive, um, you know, back chat from people saying, why do we care what these idiots think, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to understand them anymore. We just, you know, et cetera, you know, very negative. So they weren't yeah. wrong actually and and i can honestly say that everybody that i met was nice decent cared about their local community cared about their country you know they and and that's that's one of the things i kind of i wanted to understand what those people were like and what was driving them it's so fascinating a place like stoke because i think that mindset has existed existed for quite some time partly geographic partly because the way the economy's changed but when i worked there kind of it is a corridor. You go through it to get to the northwest of England or to the West Midlands. And uh, I guess it's a classic Red Wall area in that bigger areas around it have stayed quite metropolitan and been able to weather economic change a bit better and have stayed Labour. In places like Stoke, where it's more white working class, it's slightly not in the middle of nowhere in the same that former coalfield areas are, but it shares a lot of those similar traits, the industry that's gone and that sense that compared to perhaps it's more prosperous or larger neighbours, it gets left out and now it's feeling left out in a different way that nationally culturally as individuals they're they're basically looked down on yeah it's both it's 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 geographical isolation and it's it's isolation in the sense of you know attitudes values and so on the geographical isolation was very powerful though i mean in stoke i asked people where they went to do their christmas shopping and they said they were as likely to go to London as they were to the nearest big city, say to Birmingham or so. They, they just would never go there. Um, and, you know, in Accrington, which is only 20 miles from Manchester, it takes an hour and a half to get to Manchester by train. Um, you know, what, one, of the, one of the guys that I met, Kenneth, um, he told me that his son had moved to Manchester for work. And he told me that as sadly as if he'd moved to Australia. He never went there. You know, it was, it was too awkward and difficult to get to. It felt like another world. So what's happened, and I think it's quite interesting, is that through, through the Labour government, through the Labour period, I think quite a lot of resource went into some of those towns, those cities, mm. um, and they are really thriving. Manchester is a great example. But, you know, if you're in Accrington, just 20 miles away, you are not thriving. Um, you know, there's almost no, if you like, middle class in, 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 in Hindburn. Um, 
you walk down the street and you know every other shop is boarded up you go to the shopping center and it's all pound shops run down charity shops there's nothing that one of the big themes was is there a marks and spencer in your town because this was a, this was a symbol of decline that was mentioned everywhere i went was the decline of the high street it's going to be even more important now in the yeah. you know covid era but uh, particularly the loss of a marks and spencer because people said you know it's like there's nothing nice left here at all anymore you want something special it's heartbreaking you know it's it, you know, it's really odd is i identify with so much of it from growing up is that um i remember thinking london was like <laughs> Basically, another you know, country, and I grew up in Nottingham. It's an hour and a half on the train. It's probably two hours back then. But even then, you're like, you know, in a weird way, you kind of limit your own horizons in some ways. And that's as a result of how, you know, how easy is it to get to these places? How emotionally close to these places feel? You know, what does the news and the media tell you about these places compared to how you feel about the area you live in? But I can totally understand, and it sort of sounds comedic, but I can totally understand how someone on 20 miles out of Manchester would feel that Manchester was a million miles away. I totally identify with yeah, that. Yeah, and they would have literally nothing, no no reason to go there, and they would feel that the people that lived there were very different from them, and they are. <laughs> you know, they really are. And, and Accrington, like, you know, we talked about Stoke, Stoke had the potteries, Accrington had, um, the, you know, the, the weaving industry, which is now non-existent. There are lots of beautiful boarded up old mills. Um, and it had the brickworks, the Norrie brick, it's iron backwards. It's the strongest brick in the world that was made there. They're terribly proud of it yeah. with good reason. So the Empire State Building was built with Norrie bricks. Uh, with Norrie oh my bricks. God, it's a great I know, fact. Right. I know, I know, but, but basically, you know, what, what had happened was those brickworks had just gradually, you know, gone, fallen into decline. I think that in the David Cameron era, they made a bit of a thing. He and George Osborne went up there and opened them, but I think they were opened in a much smaller way. And I think they have subsequently, you know, kind of more or less closed down again, open and closed forever. And how was it for you conducting this research where you're in place at Heimberg and you're able to do the ethnographic stuff, you're able to be in people's houses and follow them to work and to school and to the shops. And then in Stoke, you're basically, I presume, doing it over Zoom or whatever equivalent you used. Yeah. Did that affect the research anyway? Did that, did that take something away? Or, or were you still able to, through the quality of your conversations and questions, still be able to get a, a good picture of things? Well, it, it was useful because I'd already done the first two locations um, you know, kind of in, in real time, I'd been there. So I knew the kinds of things I wanted to ask about yeah. um, because I could see some really clear patterns coming out. Um, so in that sense, I was still able to, you know, to, to have very good conversations. And it made it easier actually to sort of go back and chat to people again as well, which is another thing that I did because, <laughs> you know, basically having done most of the field work for the book in February and, and early March, of course, you know, then coronavirus happened in the way that it did and everything seemed to change and it kept changing. So, you know, we had Boris Johnson as hero. Then we had the whole Dominic Cummings thing. There were so many things happening that I felt I had to keep dipping back in, yeah. um, you know, because I, I kept wondering if everything would have changed all over again. Um, and, and actually, in a way, it made it easier doing that because I could just, you know, pick up the phone to people. I could Zoom. I could reconvene people quite easily and quickly. And they were all at home as well. So they were easier to, to sort of pin down. So. 
how do you think people feel when you ask them to be part of this stuff? I mean, it, it must be kind of surreal for people to, out of nowhere, get an email or a or a text or a call or however you get hold of people and say, Britain thinks want to ask you about your life. You know, you, you're living in Stoke, the phone rings one day and then one the next minute you're part of this amazing study. I mean, do you think in a way... It's almost, um, I forget the rule about, you know, once you observe something, it changes, like with wildlife and things. But do you think in a way, even just bringing people into a study like this will have an effect on them in that they'll go, oh, I actually feel sort of more connected to London or politics or, or, or the UK now? I do think that's, that is a bit of a watch out, actually. I've just, because we're coming up to the, you know, anniversary of the election, I have once again gone back to a few of the people to get their kind of like, you know, year end report, um, you know, like school report for the, for the government and for the opposition. Um, and I, I must say, I felt as I was chatting to people then that, so what happens is if they know that there is a likelihood that I'm going to get in touch with them and ask them what they think about politics, you know, bear in mind, most people don't think about politics at all in their lives. It just doesn't, you know, it's just, so the first time you talk to them, they are, they are really kind of scoping out as they're talking to you, how they're going to frame their response. They've never been asked that question before. They've never, and it's very fresh and very different. And what I felt was that they were noticing politics much more. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the things I was thinking was probably ahead of the local elections, I shall actually do, I shall go to the same sorts of places, but, but actually go to some fresh people as well as maybe go back. I mean, some of the people, some of the people I spoke to were just great characters and I will definitely keep in touch with them. They were fantastic. And, and, and you know, very, but now very thoughtful and articulate about politics and really noticing things in a way, because they're thinking, oh, Deborah said that she might call, you know, in December, so I'm just yeah. gonna keep an eye out for this. So I think, I think it does, you're right. It's like that wildlife thing. It does, it does change, um, change people a little bit and you have to watch out for that. So it's useful to have that kind of like a panel effect where you're going back to the same people. But I think you probably then have to marry that together with some fresh people that are also coming with fresh eyes. I suppose I was thinking of it in a more positive way in that you were kind of doing a service, I suppose, on behalf of democracy and politics, that by yeah. conducting these groups across the country, you're helping in some way to stimulate an interest in politics and to, you know, if, if this was something, I mean, not that you'd want the state to do this sort of thing, but if there were, if you had more wow. resources and you could run more of these things, actually, this would be a great way to engage people in politics beyond just political parties and are you left wing or right wing? But I mean, that's one of the theories of participative democracy. And actually, when you say you wouldn't want the state to do it, well, actually, why not? I mean, I think probably not the kind of thing that I've been doing where you're looking to get people's Staying in people's houses and following them to school. <laughs> houses and yeah, walking down the road with them to take their dog out. Maybe <laughs> not. But but actually, you know, the idea of doing things like citizens' assemblies and citizens' panels, ordinary people can get involved in policy making very effectively, in my view. It's something I feel really sort of passionate about, that it makes democracy better. Um, and, you know, people become more confident and more interested um, they also see how difficult it is as well. So, you know, they don't have, they're not starry eyed. They're not, they're not saying, why doesn't all this just get made good? You know, they understand yes. the difficulties. So I, th I think there is, there's something very interesting there that could be done. Yeah. And just on keeping in touch with the people in the groups, do they, 
Do they just sometimes get into? I mean, I suppose in a way, some of them must become like friends. Do they just get in touch and say, "Oh, Deborah, I saw you on the telly," or "I read this and thought of you," or "What's going on with Keir Starmer?" Can you, you know, do they just get in touch and ask you casual questions outside of the research? No, 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 never. And I mean, just to be clear, by the way, this this is not something that that I Britain thinks would do for a normal research survey. It's just what I did for the book to go back to the same people. Um, no, I mean, there's still often not very interested really. I mean, uh, you know, uh, chatting to people, you know, they, for instance, in this most recent round, um, nobody could really name any members of the cabinet other than Rishi Sunak, uh, Boris Johnson, one or two knew Pretty Patel. Um, you know, most of them could name, but not all could name Keir Starmer. Matt Sorry? Matt Hancock? Uh, known by a few, known okay. by a few, but not universally known. You know, I mean, I'm just saying, this, these are people who've, who I've been chatting to at several points through the year, yeah. so they are a bit more tuned in, they are noticing. It, it's just worth flagging that they're still not noticing that much. I mean, the, you know, the difference between people in the Westminster bubble or near it and ordinary people, you know, up in Darlington or Accrington or wherever living their lives is huge. Yes. And how do you find these people? So it's the, well, exactly the same way that we recruit people into, into focus groups or, or, or whatever, any kind of research process for anything really, which is that we have, for this kind of qualitative work, we have recruiters all around the country uh, whose job it is. It's actually a job, you know, that you will go out and find people. And they, they use a mix of different things. So some of them will have a, a database that they will use some will go out on the street. You know, sometimes when you see people doing market research on, mm. on the street with a clipboard, actually what they're doing is recruiting people for focus groups. So they might ask you a few questions. They're screening questions to see, you know, so they're looking for, you know, a, a man aged between this and this who does this particular kind of occupation or buys a particular soap powder or whatever it is. And, and so if you, you, if you get through those screening questions, they would then say, are you by any chance free next Wednesday? <laughs> yeah, and that's wow. how it works. Yeah. And so they're companies that you basically commission to find people. And, and, and they're you... mainly sort of freelance rather. They're, they're, in fact, there are companies that do it as well, but it's a mix of sort of companies and freelance. So we will, yeah, we have a network of people that we use. So if we want to do work in a particular area, I mean, obviously they're all doing it virtually uh, in the main at the moment. So they're using databases, they're calling people, they, they might network it through, uh, you know, people who know people and so on. And on the whole, is that effective? Do you find actually that you get the sorts of people that you're after? Yes. I mean, what we do at Britain Thinks, what we tend to do is we, we will then do a screening interview with everybody that's been recruited to make sure that they are actually right. Um, mm. You know, that they genuinely are that person, you know, do live in that place have bought that product you know if, if you know if it was for pet food that they do have a pet yes. <laughs> you know, whatever um so we would do that uh and and then and then yes yeah and and usually they're great yeah yeah and you screen out people who have done that kind of thing before and you screen out people who are uh journalists or work in media or marketing yeah so with beyond the red wall one of the great chapters in it is, is loaning votes to the tories and 
What really struck me about that was 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 actually the words that Boris Johnson used when he first became well, not when he first became prime minister, but in the wake of his election victory on the steps of Downing Street, when he says, I know some people have loaned their vote to us. And I thought it was a really interesting thing for a prime minister who's just increased his party share of the vote again, got himself the best majority that any party's had since 2005. And for him, I thought it was a sort of strangely humble moment. And um, it, fe it felt to me quite accurate. And I thought it was interesting that he said it. Is that because you think that really does reflect how people in red wall seats and, and perhaps elsewhere perceived that election, that it was a, it was a loan and not a kind of grant? Uh, it's such an interesting question. I, I mean, I suspect for him, it was absolutely the right position to take to, to, to show that humility and to show that he wasn't taking those votes for granted. Because if this group of people, you know, have one thing that unites them, it's the feeling that they were taken for granted by Labour. Right. So the last thing you want to do if you're if you've won their vote is to look like, you know, you are now taking them. For and can I just ask, sorry to interrupt, is it that they feel taken, grant, taken for granted by the last Labour government or Labour since government or, or is there no distinction in that feeling? It, it's it's sort of both. Um, I mean, it's it's off. It's their Labour MP uh, often who they felt was somebody they felt that a lot of stories I heard were talking about an MP being sort of parachuted in, you know, the favoured son, it normally was a son, they were thinking here about people like Tristram Hunt, perhaps David Miliband, you know, I guess maybe Tony Blair, being parachuted in to a, to a seat that they had no real connection with. Um, and then, you know, they would look south to Westminster, they would come up to the constituency once a month and, and, and you know, run a surgery, they'd have staff up there, but they wouldn't actually ever get to know the constituency or ever actually be kind of really rooting for the constituency. Yes. So, so the, the, there was that. Then there's this sense, broader sense about Labour, which I, I mentioned earlier, which is this feeling that the Labour Party has been taken over by quote unquote snooty graduates who look down their nose, who are very mm. different from them who tell them what to think. And uh, there was one woman I met in Darlington called Yvonne, uh, Yvonne Richardson, and she was so angry about this. It was extraordinary. She felt so hurt was the word that she kept using. Mm. And this was very much about the Brexit vote actually, where she felt, you know, she, she voted leave. She wasn't a strong supporter of leave, but she felt that Remain voters told her what to think, told her she was stupid, told her she was racist, and she was just so furious. So, so there's a sense that the party has changed and it's that, you know, I mean, I, I think I've, I've, I've shared this with you before, you, know, you do the thing in focus groups, if the political party was a meal, what would they be? Yeah. Back in the day when I first started doing this work, Labour was a pie and a pint and it then became, um, you know, kind of craft beer and sausage on croute. And, <laughs> and now, you know, it, doing some work in crew, not, not work for the book, but work I'd done before that, it was quinoa. And that was just like, because it was like the most stupid middle-class food people <laughs> Tasteless. think of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, so, really, of all those meals, you can't beat a pie in a pint. That is the best. There's, sort of, it, it, <laughs> there's, something, there's something in the analogy that's so effective because not only does it suggest a particular, I guess, class and lifestyle, a pie in a pint, but also that is a more satisfying... There's something also about the fact that it's inherently more desirable and quite apart from a value judgment, I guess. Or yeah, maybe that's just me. Exactly. 
No, I, well, I, I think that's probably right. And certainly we, by the time you get to quinoa, you've sort of given up, really. you've lost yeah. the will to live, haven't you? <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, but yes, I mean, you know, and that, so there's this sense of, you know, this, I think it's really important to, to, to nail this, which is that, you know, what happened last December um, was turbocharged by Brexit and by Jeremy Corbyn, and let's be very clear about this, they did not like Jeremy Corbyn one bit, but it wasn't the fault of either Brexit or Jeremy Corbyn. This was a slow car crash. It had been coming down, down the tracks for a long time. People felt that the Labour Party had moved away from them and they felt very resentful about it. One of the great quotes in it is that Boris has de-snobbified the Tories. And this is the sort of thing that I think some commentators don't get at all. They say, well, how could he be de-snobby? He went to Eton and he's Oxbridge. And it's the same people who I think don't understand what people mean when they talk about elites. It's not necessarily that these people didn't have a privileged background. It's about how people understand elites in terms of modern political discourse and the things you can and can't say. I totally understand why Boris appeals to people in Stoke and Nottingham and the sort of places that I, I grew up and worked in. Um, but to some people, that will be a surprise. They'll say, how could Boris, who's basically like the poshest prime minister we've had since Blair, be, uh, could have de-snobbified them? But he has. I, I spent such a long time exploring this and, and literally said to people, look, you know, he's an old Etonian, he's, you know, he, you know, he talks Latin all the time. He, you know, he went to Oxford. What, what is it about him? I, th I think there are a couple of things here. One is, as you say, actually about how people understand elites. Basically, you know, if you are, um, you know, a care worker in Accrington and you look at uh, Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, Jeremy Corbyn, insert the name of pretty much any politician you like, they are all posh. You know, it's it's a very it's it's a sort of very fine line. It's a nuance that's sort of almost indistinguishable. The difference in poshness. I mean, you or I might be able, might say, well, look, I can see that Keir Starmer comes from a much more humble background. He went to an ordinary state school. His dad was a manual worker. We get all of that, but but actually, the fact is that you know, for a lot of the people I was chatting to, they looked at both men and they were just, they both were posh, right? Mm. There's no, you know, there was not much to choose between them on that front. Neither of them, they felt, would understand the way that they lived, the that lives. such a good lived. point. I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, it sounded like that Monty Python sketch, but genuinely when I was growing up, I thought anyone who had a garden was posh. That's what I sort of considered posh. And I think yeah. people don't realise that sometimes it might seem like quite a small difference, but anyone who is marginally better off than you it, the gulf feels huge. So then once yeah. you get to Sir Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the Labour Party and exists in a Westminster world, I mean, of course people aren't going to perceive there's that much difference between him yeah. and Boris in terms of their yeah. privilege. Yeah. They, they really, really don't. So that's just not, you know, that that is not a point that they make. So you then think, well, OK, well, what is it about Boris? And it is this thing about him, which is, you know, the, the, the scruffiness, the authenticity, the uh, you know forthright language. What they loved was that you know he was very direct. He said he was going to get Brexit done. He, they you know they felt they, and there's a warmth to him as well. There are a number of things going on. I think that mean that they feel that he's somebody. As one person said, you feel he's somebody who likes people. Now I've no idea if that's true. I've never met him. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. Um, but but. He, there's something about him that comes over as warm and engaging. 
the clear speaking thing, though, is something that has um, eluded him slightly in, uh, in in recent months. And one person said to me when I went back and said, what do you think now, you know, in September um, about Boris Johnson? They said, we voted for bold and we've ended up with waffle. And I think one of the, so the disappointment in him is quite palpable now. Um, and they feel that, that you know, the, the biggest example of that is simply that they thought that he was very clear, very decisive, all these values, you, you, qualities that you value more than any other uh, in, in a crisis. And he doesn't seem to have that anymore. So, you know, again, the sort of focus group thing, if this politician was an animal, what animal would he be? And he's a sheep. <laughs> uh, being sort of being herded, he's racing around the field. The, you know, public opinion is pushing him in one way. Backbenchers are pushing him in another direction. You know, Dominic Cummings is pushing him in another direction, and they feel that he doesn't have his own sort of, um, you know, radar, or there's nothing that's directing him internally. And he's got uh, white fluffy hair. He's got white, sharp, fluffy hair. Oh, maybe there's that too. Maybe he actually looks like a sheep. I don't know. So what, what animal did people say Keir Starmer was like? Oh, now this is interesting. So Keir Starmer is a mighty eagle. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Oh, you think, struggle wow. to get a better answer than that. What politician would not want to be a mighty eagle? But, but, there's always a but, isn't there? But here's this eagle. He's circling above that you know the, the the fray kind of looking down on it analyzing everything yeah and i think that the, you know that that's keir starmer's challenge there in a nutshell uh which is in lots of ways they think he's very admirable but there's a sort of distance between him and what's going on and as one person said to me you know he seems like a decent enough bloke but i've no idea what he cares about what he stands for or or really why i should vote labor but in a way, at this stage in the electoral cycle, that's quite handy, is it? You know, he's established himself as above it all and impressive, um, and he hasn't kind of given he has he hasn't given too much away to, I guess, alienate anyone yet. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I think he's in a good position. I mean, the other big thing that he's got going for him is that he's not Jeremy Corbyn as well. So that's 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 a big step forward, right? Let's let's be really clear about this. But I. I feel a little bit worried about it because, you know, all, all the work that I've done over the years suggests that you have a relatively narrow window to establish yourself with the electorate. And that once that, that window closes, you know, it, and, and actually they form a settled view and it can be quite hard then to change yes. their minds. I'm not saying it's impossible. And as you say, there's a long way to go in all probability till the next election. But I feel that there's now... I, I think there's a sense of urgency for Labour that they need to be setting out their stall a bit. And it's been very difficult. And people say it's very, they know it's difficult. It's been difficult for everybody. I mean, I asked people in this recent round, this sort of, you know, year end thing, sum up the government in one word. And most of the words they came up with were, were pretty unflattering, actually. But the one word that came up again and again and again was unlucky right oh. you know unlucky because they've had to deal this was never in this was never in the plan you know boris johnson did not imagine that he would find himself dealing with a global pandemic you know sort of three months in and and, and that's bad luck um and and keir starmer also one of the words unlucky because you know as a new leader trying to establish himself 
he's found it very difficult. And I think they, they admired and respected the fact that he, on a number of things, had not challenged the government and had supported the government and had, you know, if you like, joined a national effort. That's, that felt very important. We've sort of drifted into talking about the, yes. the, the, the more modern research, which is great. It's sort of yes. a, a, it was seamless into life. Highlighted the fact that um, so with Starmer, then, do you think being robbed of that, you know, when you become the leader of a party, usually you get a big conference and you get that big thing and it's on the news. And, you know, he had to do it in his front room on his laptop, um, yeah. which kind of robs you of that big, dramatic moment. And obviously everyone's just thinking about COVID anyway. Yeah. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, it's given him a crisis to show, in stark contrast to Boris Johnson, the sort of leader he would be, the sort of tone he would strike. In a weird way, that there are positives and negatives for him about this situation. I think that's right. I mean, I think he certainly, what he has shown people is that he is calm, he is authoritative, uh, he's sensible. Look, these are all good things to be. That's great. Um, and, and responsible. Uh, and he took a responsible view in, in, you know, kind of agreeing with the government, backing the government on things. Uh, the problem is that what he hasn't done, if you, if you think about the mountain that Labour has to climb, re-engaging with these working class voters in these sort of traditional Labour seats, it has to be more than that. You know, he has to woo them and he has to show them that he understands them and he has to tell them what he's about. And, and again and again, what I've heard is, you know, seems a decent bloke, but I just don't know what he stands for. And there, they need to. There are two chapters in your book, Can Labour Win Them Back and Can the Tories Keep Them? And, and they, are, they are two distinct questions, even though they are inextricably linked. So let, let's take them in turn. Firstly, can Labour win them back? And, and I guess as part of that, what does Keir Starmer have to do to win them back? So, I, I mean, I think that, I think the answer is yes, by the way. I mean, what I would say is that neither, uh, it's not a shoe in for either party. Neither party is, is you know, is, is in a good place in some ways. They've both got a lot to prove. Um, I mean, for the, for, for the Tories, it's this whole levelling up agenda, by the way, people never use that expression. Of course not. <laughs> they understand it or even agree with it. You know, levelling up is, uh, is, is a bit of a nonsense because they kind of see it as a zero-sum game. And one of the things that came very clearly, we were talking earlier about the dis distance, you know, L London being another country, there's quite a lot of resentment towards London. There is a feeling, rightly or wrongly, that London has soaked up all the resource and they feel that their place can't get better unless London gets worse. That's that's one of the things that's really. Oh my clear. god! I mean, I kind of I I I understand the sentiment until that kind of fine, and I understand I even understand that, but that that has potentially profound implications for the country. It's quite stark. And, you know, you can see, I mean, the, go the government obviously are trying to get around this, talking about, the, you know, levelling up. So what, what we'll do is bring everything up to the level of the, you know, the better off places. Uh, that doesn't cut much ice with people. So what, you know, I mean, they just don't the, really see the logic in it. But they it the they want London to be worse off, for sure. And, and do they say stuff like that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how, yeah. Would they, how would they say, do they want, uh, you know, I want Londoners to know what it's like to be me. Is it that sort of thing? Yes. Literally that. Literally that. Um, you know, they feel that their areas have been uh, deprived of investment. 
their industries that they were once so proud of. And I think this is a really important point, the, proud that they, the pride that they have in their local communities, in their local areas. And, you know, they want to see, see that fixed. There's almost a sense of revenge about it. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. really felt that when I worked in Stoke in that time was that there yeah. was a real, and I think the, a lot of the reason people were voting for the BNP was that some of them genuinely, sadly supported the ends and values of the party. But a lot of it was a two fingers up, was a kind of, you don't know what it's like to be me and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the, I'm going to vote for the one party that's going to make you listen, that's going to shock the system. Um, but still that, and I don't think a lot of people kind of understand that's how people's minds work is, there is a defiance about it and there is an element of, perhaps justifiable envy and jealousy about the way other people's lives have gone over the last I think it's more 15, it's, it's it's a wrong it's a wrong to be corrected that's what they feel that they mm. have been neglected and you know what they're not wrong actually I mean one of the things that you know I, I reflected on um, after the election was that you know in in many years of being a Labour pollster I couldn't recall doing any work in any of the red wall seats I, then I thought maybe maybe the odd by-election but basically those seats were taken for granted we focused on swing seats you know in other places um, and of course the Tories didn't bother with them either because they thought they were in the bag for Labour so yeah. you know basically they were actually neglected by the entire political class. Neglected I mean it, it, uh, and this is something I, uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but as obviously as somebody who worked for the Labour Party in that time, and obviously a, a period you're sympathetic to, I think Labour delivered in policy terms. It's just that we weren't communicating a lot of the time, um, and it's perhaps that breakdown in communication. Or am I being too sympathetic to my former employers? I, I think you are actually, because honestly, if you are in. I mean, Darlington is slightly different. Darlington is a, feels a little bit more on the up economically. Yeah. Um, but 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 it's still the same. And and actually, you know, in 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 sort of Hindburn or Stoke, they're very very run down places. Mm. There isn't very much going on there, you know. So I don't know that it is right to say that the Labour government delivered to them. I think the Labour government put a lot of energy and resource into their nearby cities, but as discussed, they don't feel any connection with those, the people that come from those small towns. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So what's the lesson, you know, you're sort of reflecting on it as a, as a pollster and the work that you do, um, yeah. that you weren't looking at the red wall back then. You know, what are the areas you shouldn't be neglecting now? Or is, it, is yeah. this kind of woken us all up to, to everything? It's, su it, it's such an important point, isn't it, about how you forge a coalition and what you do. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, you would never feel again, I think. So, I mean, you might reasonably say, well, you can't ignore cities either. Um, I mean, one of the things that I talk about in the book actually is the citizens jury that uh, I ran for Labour Together, the organisation that um, is trying to sort of unite different factions of the Labour Labour Party. Um, and we, we brought together people from red wall seats and people from kind of you know, cities, urban remainers, we called them, and worked with them to try to see if you could find a, you know, a, a coalition that they could all agree on, which in the end you could, but it required those urban remainers, I think, to sort of make some quite big compromises because they realised they were the people who'd stuck with Labour and the other lot had walked away mm. and they knew that what had to happen was to bring them back. And there's a real danger, I think, with that sort of metropolitan Labour remainer, um they sort of presume they're absolutely right and yeah. <laughs> that no debate is required. Exactly. And, uh, that is really, you know, at any point on the compass, once you get into that mindset, however reasonable might, you might perceive yourself to be, if you've basically been radicalised by Brexit and have made all sorts of value judgments about people who you disagree with, you know, having previously been quite moderate, a lot of these people, I think, have weirdly become almost zealots yeah. as a result of that referendum on yeah. the Remain side. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Just on Labour Together then, um, you talk about uniting factions. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there are some factions in the Labour Party that, 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 that can't be united, that, that, that actively don't want it. You know, it always makes me laugh when I hear the hard left say, we need an end to factionalism and we need to unite the party. Like, you don't have any interest in that. You know, you exist to be <laughs> factional. I, I wonder if any of your respondents um, kind of picked up on this at all and said, actually, you know, the... the not that they would call them the progress wing or, or, or old Labour or, or Blairites, but do any of them say, actually, if Labour wants to win, they need to get rid of people like that and not try and unite with them? Well, they don't. I, I mean, they don't engage with the detail in that way, but they, they definitely, I mean, there's no question that if you are perceived to be uh, a divided party, people aren't very interested. In fact, one one person that I went back to, a guy called Ian, really bright, uh, youngish plumber from Accrington, um, and he said to me, when I think about Keir Starmer, I think Keir Starmer's quite like Pretty Patel, isn't he? So I said, is he? <laughs> okay, talk me through that. Um, and he said, yeah, yeah, he is, because basically, you know, he's got a job to do, but he can't get on and do it because he's got his own internal battles to fight. Wow. And I thought, yeah, actually, okay, that's fair enough, because I, I, I see exactly what you mean here. Um, and that's what he was talking about. And so, you know, the, the Labour has to move on from this. If Labour, you know, continues to just take lumps out of itself, then 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 people will have no no interest. And it has to move on and it has to sort of set out its own agenda and move forward. It has to show what Keir Starmer believes in. Uh, it has to show that it that it cares about the country. That's another big, another big letdown for Labour was this feeling that Labour wasn't patriotic yes. as well. Not only that it didn't love the country, but it was actually a bit ashamed of the country. Um, and that's such an important theme that comes through because again, all you know, another thing that united all the places I went to, huge care and love and pride for their local community and huge love and pride for the country. And my feeling is that, you know, basically, if you as a politician don't love your country, I don't think people in the Red Wall will ever love you. And it's that straightforward, it's that stark. 
and you know what I find so fascinating about this is it's not that hard. It doesn't mean that you have to wrap yourself in the Union Jack and like pretend you agree with absolutely everything that, that Britain has done historically. It's just that people want to feel good about where they live. Yeah. It's, it's really not, you don't have to do all these sort of, you don't have to go, oh, I'm going to be at last night at the proms and we need to sing Rule Britannia. All that stuff I think is, is tinsel. No, no, they don't, no, I don't think they really care about that. No, no it, nor do but I. But actually it's an invitation to define your vision of what Britain could and should be like. You know, so what does Great Britain mean for you? What makes it great? And that's, and that's what they're waiting to hear. Yeah. Uh, and they and that needs to be done with with passion and love and you know and that is another of the big strengths of Boris Johnson you know when we're talking about what his appeal was that was the other thing one person a guy called Nigel that I spoke to in Stoke he said you know what he is is he's a good old-fashioned patriot and that's good enough for me you know I, I will forgive him anything on that basis how odd that a guy called Nigel would say that <laughs> <laughs> I know. um so I, the, the, I think the patriotism thing fascinates me because I think so many politicians on the left are just dreadful at it and feel really squeamish about it. Um, I wonder if that breaks down in any of the in the Red Wall book or in the leadership report in the Mood of the Nation report distinctly then, not just as Britishness, but but as Englishness, because I think that's an even bigger problem for Labour is that it's fine to be proud to be Scottish and Welsh, Irish and Northern Irish, but being proud to be English. Yeah. Harder thing. Did, did, did that come through at all? I, I didn't actually, um, in that I think most people would have talked about being British rather than when they talk about the country, they're talking about Britain. But I mean, of course, all of this begs the question about, you know, what might happen in Scotland, um, which I think is, you know, poses some horrendous problems and, and, and paves the way for more division, I think. Um, but yes, you're right. I mean, I, I, you know, I think there's a whole, there's a very interesting thing about about Englishness. In truth, it wasn't much discussed. Um, but 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 it, but it might be in the future. I think, given what might potentially be hurtling down the tracks towards us, you know, from Scotland. And by the way, actually, when I was doing the work in the Red Wall, it reminded me very vividly of work I had done in Scotland. You know, in the early, I think it was like 2011 where, um, you know, Anna Sawa, who you interviewed very recently, really great guy, and Margaret Curran got me to do some work in Glasgow. They thought in the local elections that were coming, they were gonna lose the Glasgow council. They didn't actually, but doing those focus groups, I was just overwhelmed by how hostile those Scottish voters felt towards Westminster. Yes. And exactly the same phenomenon. They felt that, you know, all the bright Scots that had won their seats then kind of looked to Westminster to build their careers and never looked back. And they felt completely neglected. Um, and, you know, the writing was on the wall. Uh, it was so clear. On the red wall. Um, <laughs> on the Adrian's wall. <laughs> on Adrian's red wall. Um, <laughs> The, the recent report you got out, the leadership report, there's so many brilliant... I mean, all of your reports, there's just... Uh, for someone like me and I think listeners of this show, and I just think society in general, it's always just great, juicy stuff presented so well that you, you could do a podcast on each kind of bullet yeah, point. The, le the leadership one is amazing, isn't it? Oh, and, and the, the, the top line out of that really is that female leaders are seen as more effective in a crisis as their male counterparts. Do you think that's historically true, that that's a general thing that would always play out? Or, or, or are there no. things... That specific to this crisis? 
I think there are things specific to this crisis and, and probably that particular group of leaders as well. And it's very interesting, actually, just continuing with the sort of, you know, the, the Britain uh, thought, Nicola Sturgeon is streets ahead of Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer. I mean, literally, we, we asked in a recent poll, how will history judge uh, each of these leaders for how they've handled the, handled the pandemic? And, uh, you know, will, will they judge well or badly? In terms of judge well, I think Boris Johnson scored 25%, Keir Starmer th scored 31%, Nicola Sturgeon, 53% wow. said she would be judged well. Now, I think this is fascinating because I'm not sure that she's actually done anything very different or frankly very has fared very much better. It's about her manner. It's about her, you know, one of the things that we saw from that leadership survey was that in the context of a crisis, people value certain things much more. They value clarity, they value clear communications, they value decisiveness. She's got all of that in spades. And people in England were saying that too. They were saying, gosh, I wish that she was running the country. She's amazing. But isn't that interesting as well? Because I don't think there's any doubt she is a better communicator than Boris Johnson, but still actually some of, you know, even, even if you take away the fact that care home deaths in Scotland have had a higher rate than they were in England, they've still got one of the highest excess death rates in, in Europe. Yeah. Policy-wise, they've basically done exactly the same thing as Westminster, give or take a week or two either side. Uh, and just the system there is basically identical and they haven't really diverged. It's been small things. What I find amazing about the Commons is at the start I agreed and then... As, as the crisis developed, their language, I thought, became just as woolly. And here we have, in England, it's hands, face, space, which I think is so easy to remember. In Scotland, it's FACTS, which is this sort of bizarre acronym of F-A-C-T. And I think it's really hard to remember what that is. So uh, what's really strange is, I think, in many ways, the Scottish government's communications have become worse throughout the crisis. But maybe it's that point you make, that there's a window, and at the start... And anyway, yeah. Nicola Sturgeon yeah. just comes across as a more professional yeah. person than Boris I mean, she's Johnson. Just, yeah, she's just she's clear, she's precise, she seems very decisive. It's all about her manner. And I think the same is true of, of Jacinda Ardern does very, very well. Uh, Angela Merkel does very, very well. The Queen does very well, although Marcus Rashford does better than the Queen. I don't know if you spotted that in the leadership yes. thing. Some fantastic nuggets there. Worst of all, of course, is Donald Trump. With, with Donald Trump here in the here in the UK. <laughs> what I thought was amazing was he, he polls lower than Ed Davey, which um, and no disrespect to Ed Davey, but given we talk about how low the recognition is of members of the cabinet, the fact that the president, I thought the president of the United States would fare better just on recognition alone. But I know, but I no, know. I know, I know, amazing. And and just on Starmer, then, what does this leadership report say about him? Do people? perceive him to be a strong leader does he compare favorably to boris not just to corbyn he does compare favorably to boris i mean he's uh yeah he's 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 done well i think he's established himself well but but you know as discussed he absolutely now i think has to say this is what i care about and he has to keep saying it too yes. i was thinking about this it's the old thing it was tony brown i think was you know said you know just at the point where you are totally bored with saying that thing is the point where people have started to notice it. And I sort of imagined myself saying to Starmer's team, you've got to show a bit more of him, you've got to, and they'd be like, well, we did Desert Island Discs, which I think was brilliant, by the way. I think yep. he came incredibly well in Desert Island Discs, but the trouble is you have to do it every day. Yes. <laughs> and, every in, and, day. In, and not just on Radio 4. 
Yes. You need to be on this day. morning. You know, you, everywhere. Yeah, GMTV. Exactly. Every day, out there on the sofa, you know, and, and you have to have a really clear message. Uh, I mean, the other thing, actually, which we haven't talked about that Labour absolutely has to do as well is to rebuild trust in the economy mm. and their ability to manage the economy. Because for all that he is seen as very competent, the party is still trailing behind him. Um, and it really matters that his Chancellor of the Exchequer is, is well respected too. And Lisa Dodds has not made any impact yet. That's not to say she can't, but she must. Um, it's so important. Labour will not win another election unless it manages to reassure people that it can be trusted to run the economy. It does feel like a weakness that, given that so much of people's anxiety about the, the pandemic is the economic, and yeah. that if there's one thing the government has done that people really agree with, it's things like the furlough scheme, and yes. people who are self-employed, people who work in the arts might be less satisfied, but in general, a Tory government paying people's wages, I think, is uh, a big deal that Labour haven't been able to get onto that pitch and, and that Annalise Dodds, as an individual, isn't cutting through when, when that's such a big part of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, he needs to have a you know, very strong team of just a small number of people who become well-known, who are you know, spreading the same message. But the, the one thing that matters more than anything else is the economy. Because, you know, I mean, as somebody who sort of worked advised Labour for a long, long time. I mean, it was the big hurdle that we had to overcome ahead of 97. And even in 97, actually, we went into that election level pegging just about with the Tories, which was in itself a huge achievement, yeah. but level pegging on management of the economy. But by the time you got to 2005, we were ahead. In 2005, it's not an exaggeration to say, against all odds in some ways, post the Iraq war and all of that, Labour won because it was so well trusted on the economy. Uh, but then that, you know, that that has been lost uh, in the years that followed. And it has to be won back. That 97 yeah. example is so pertinent because that was after 18 years. That was yep. after Black Wednesday. And yep. people look, whatever people think of Gordon Brown, they would say on the economy, you know, that's his, that's his strong suit. That's, you know, he's a probably... Brilliant one of the most respected and, and competent yeah. chancellors the country has yeah. ever had. Obviously, he grew into that role, but it's it's remarkable to think that even then, with Blair and Brown going up against 18 years and, and Black Wednesday, could only at that point, yeah. at their most popular point... Yeah. Well, I would say about Black Wednesday and about, you know, being the country being in economic difficulties, there is no room for complacency here. I think that was how we were in 92. There were a lot of people who thought the economy is in a terrible state, therefore it's a big opportunity for us. The truth is that voters thought the economy is in a terrible state. I still don't trust that lot. I'm going to stick with these guys because mm -hmm. I trust them more. So, you know, we are about to head into, a, you know, an economic, you know, a, a, a recession slash depression that's going to be the worst we've seen in decades in centuries um, and actually Labour getting its economic credentials up is absolutely vital because in the end, in the end, people will trust who they trust. You've also got a Mood of the Nation report out. Um, the top line, perhaps understandably, <laughs> is that the mood of the nation is bleak. Um, <laughs> it seems quite silly to ask, but is it anything beyond the obvious around coronavirus? Yes, I think it is actually. Um, I mean, it is obviously coronavirus. It's funny because, you know, the, the year before I'd said I had never seen the nation 
as collectively depressed as they are. This was, you know, at the height of the, the rows about Brexit and this sense of us being divided and torn into, and then we did this year's, and, you know, all of those indicators were down by at least 10%, some down by more, so we were even more depressed. And I think at the heart of that, there is still this very strong sense that we are a divided nation, and of course, Brexit, shooting up the agenda again will 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 shine another light on that and i think there's also a sense that people feel you know people feel this sense of of disappointment in boris johnson um and they don't feel that anybody is rooting for them through this very much you know and that is a problem that's been a problem and there'll be a little bit more hope i mean that survey was done before all the good news about the vaccine and, okay. and it, it is, of course, possible that that is now going to, you know, literally be a game changer and a mood changer. That's possible. Um, but yeah, it was it what bleak is the right is the right way of describing it. The only area of people's lives people felt a little bit more positive about their own lives. But even there, a third felt very fed up with their own lives and the, the things like mental health problems shooting up, um, you know, real, real problems that people are facing. On the vaccine, given that, uh, uh, in a weird way, some of your respondents have, have been quite generous towards the government, unlucky being the kind of crucial defining word yeah, um, yeah. in itself. You know, it's not incompetent. It's not careless. It's not. Um... Well, actually, let me tell you some of the, Can I just tell you some of the other words? I picked uh, unlucky yeah. out because it was the one that came up most often. But here are a few words. So we've got confused, confusing, misleading, trying. They're trying. They're doing okay. their best. Stressful. Shambolic, corrupt, ridiculous, <laughs> woeful. I said three words to one person though, and he said, very well done. <laughs> so it's a really, really mixed bag, actually. But there are some real negatives in there as well. Okay. It's just that the, the one thing that almost everybody said, which I thought was so interesting, was unlucky. Well, then uh, I guess around the vaccine then, will will that play well politically for the government will people think well we got the vaccine first and even though those of us who follow politics you know more closely and more passionately might remember other things and and uh perhaps overthink how the public might judge this government if they perceive them to be slightly unlucky and then we get a vaccine the the the, the overall thing might be well actually they didn't too but they didn't do too bad and we got the vaccine first so you know well done boris I, I think there is a real possibility of that. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, you know, at the point where we're recording this, we don't yet know what's happened in, in, in Brussels and what's going to come out of that. But, you know, if he does pull off a deal, even if it's a terrible deal, um, and, and, you know, they manage to handle the distribution of the vaccine fairly well, then I think that they have a chance to sort of turn the corner. And I think it's, you know, yet another reason for Labour not to be complacent. And I think we're already seeing signs, you know, there were a few big sort of far reaching policy announcements a couple of weeks ago. I think you're starting to hear some noise and they know, you know, this the North South divide thing, the leveling up agenda, whatever you want to call it, seems to be quite high up on their agenda, which it should be, by the way, because, you know, they won't be forgiven if they don't sort it out. Uh, but I th I think that um, th there's a chance for a reset. I'm assuming there'll be a big reshuffle early in the new year. Uh, yeah, I think that they could move forward. Deborah, as always, there's a there's a million other things we didn't get to talk about, but hopefully we've now established a trend where you're on a couple of times a year at the very least. <laughs> um, and given yeah. the turbulence of politics, 
you probably have another book out in about six months to deal with whatever <laughs> crisis hits next. But the the book is absolutely superb, um, and there's a link to the to the for people can buy it in, in the blur. But Deborah, always a pleasure. And if I don't see you before, Merry Christmas. Yeah, you too. You too. Lovely to talk. <laughs> Deborah Mattinson, always superb. There were other things in that research I, I wanted to talk about, particularly around Scottish independence um, and more stuff about perceptions of leadership. But by the book, if you want more of that magnificent insight, Beyond the Red Wall is a fantastic read um, and the link is there in the blurb uh, for you to buy. Email the show as well, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, and thank you for all your emails. I read them all. And if you can, at the spirit, at the time of giving, at the real meaning of Christmas, of course, is leaving a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to this show on. Um, I'll be back next week. But for now, another on behalf of all of us, let's thank Deborah Mattinson for the amazing work she does and the clear and concise and accessible way in which she presents it. Um, and isn't it interesting that, you know, People like me, and perhaps people like you, might look at this time and go, well, Keir Starmer's done well. That research is clear. It's a good start, but there's still a mountain to climb. So uh, you can get obsessed with the small little things, watching PMQs all the time. The way the country thinks is uh, sometimes very different. Uh, a solitary lesson. At this, at the, I don't, I'm trying to sort of find a festive link. Um, I don't think there is one. But Merry Christmas anyway, and I'll see you next week. ta